I am so glad you could come today. Oh, you got the patio redone. <laughs> and at last, look, good weather. At last. I wish you were home then. A bit of sunshine. Oh, you know me, I wouldn't have done anything. It's a job. But look, it's nice to be out here, though. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Yes, thank you for coming. Hey, you know, our pastor gave a message this morning about, um, about creation care. It's, it's a hot topic these oh, days. Oh, yeah. What with the uh, U.S. getting out of the uh, climate talks, people are acting like the world might end. <laughs> well, because it might. Uh, look, don't you think it's just all trendy at the moment? I mean, going back to the land, all the gardening. I mean, I think it's just trendy. I don't think it's trendy. Taking care of the environment is necessary. Yeah, Mom. See, Kim is involved in an environmental action ministry. Oh, yes. Well, don't get me wrong. I don't think it's all bad. But if I was to hold up a sign or go on a march, it would be something that saves people. Sharing God's love. You know, the gospel. But getting involved with organizations that support clean air and water, that's loving people too. It's loving your grandkids. Oh, we're getting some of those someday. Mom. <laughs> it's about loving people who will hear the gospel after we're gone, who will see it in the legacy we leave. Well, I'm all about yeah. legacy, but let's be clear here that this world is going to end mm -hmm. someday. God's going to create oh, yeah. a new earth, but this one, destined to fail. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but Dad, do you want to be on it when it does? I mean, you're the one that told me just because you're going to get a new car someday doesn't mean you stop maintaining the one you have. No, Jake, what your father's trying to say is Jesus could come tomorrow. Yeah, or in 20 generations. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you know... I have these great memories of this national parks tour that uh, my family did when I was uh, just a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Zion, the, the arches, the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. So, a couple of years ago, I tried to recreate it. Remember that, Jake? <gasps> Remember that? Uh, it wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. It felt crowded and touristy. There was litter and, and graffiti, vandalism. It made me mad to think that we, that we just treat the great outdoors like, like it's our amusement park. Mm -hmm. we, we should respect it, not uh, act like it's there for our entertainment. I totally agree. We treat the earth like it's something to use up, like a, a tube of toothpaste or something. You're right, you're right. Our, our favorite beaches or, or, or campgrounds or, or mountaintops. I, I guess, I suppose we just act like those places will always be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to a talk at work the other day on sustainability, yeah? And a woman was telling us that we, we need to consume less, that we need to look at the source of what we consume. Mm. Well, I respect people like that, but have you seen the price of tomatoes in the local farmer's market? Well, yeah, uh, but... Horrendous. Mom, wouldn't you rather a tomato that tastes like a tomato <laughs> than a dozen that tastes like paper because they're sprayed with chemicals and shipped halfway around the world? Yeah, well, tomatoes are one thing, but, but it's obvious that this 
gets political. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Should we have pipelines, pesticides, mm -hmm. emissions bans? Uh, there are arguments on both sides. Mm -hmm. and, and is this a, a, actually a problem the church can solve? Well, if it's one that God cares about, then isn't it at least worth looking into? Hmm. Well, hmm. I think that it's all overwhelming. I do. I've got enough without trying to compost or <laughs> give up bottled water. Besides, I like my SUV. Yeah, SUV, I love it. But, you know, our, our generation is actually more into uh, reusing and reducing than you might think. To me, it's the millennials that just buy and replace. You know, from the daily Starbucks cup to clothes to phones. I mean, what, what are you on now? The iPhone 6, 7? What is it? I switched to Android, actually. Hmm. <laughs> new phone. Yeah, new phone. New phone. Well, we do support a charity, That's don't right. we, sweetheart? To do with clean water. Now, where is it? Peru? Peru. And, and that's great. I know I could do a lot more. We all could. But it can be easier to give money than to change our habits. We buy our plastic, we drive our cars, and then we pray for people in, de in the developing world without quite realizing how our actions might contradict each other. Now I just feel guilty. Okay, okay, Let, let's turn, turn our attention to something a little more uh, um, cheerful than, than the yes. end of the world, okay? Yes. Uh, yes. How yes. about um, yes. our summer vacation? Oh, yes, the oh, summer who's vacation. Who's got some ideas? Uh, we do. So this year, we think we should go completely off the grid. Um, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> that's, that's like no running water, right? Oh, if there's no flushing toilets, oh, sweetheart. No, no, no. I, can't I can't manage can't, if there's awesome. no flushing toilets. Well, that conversation we just overheard has brought to the surface many of the questions and tensions that arise whenever we talk about climate change or creation care. Is the planet really in danger? How bad is it? How much of it is our fault? And why are we talking about it in church? A couple things I want to point out as we get started. We had planned this message long before the president decided to pull out of the Paris Climate Accords. So we're not trying to make a political statement here necessarily, but certainly that decision has raised a level of intensity around that particular subject. We're also not going to debate the complexities of climate change. I mean, there certainly is evidence that our Earth is warming. 2016 has been the warmest year in Earth's history for the third year in a row. The warmest year since the end of the last ice age 11,000 years ago, scientists are telling us. We know that the ice caps are shrinking. We know the ocean levels are rising. We know that certain plants and animals are endangered or even disappearing. So scientists worldwide are telling us we should be concerned. Some are saying we should be very concerned. But again, we're not going to debate all those complexities. The debate tends to focus around whether this is a temporary phenomenon or a dangerous trend. Is it a naturally occurring event or is it something human beings have ca has caused? 
So we'll set those debates aside for a moment because however you may feel about climate change, the Bible has a lot to say about the earth and our relationship with it. And if the planet is in danger, that only raises the urgency with which we understand our role in this world as human beings and in particular as Christ followers. So for several weeks now, we have been thinking about what it means for our life with God to be good for the world. And so we've talked about being good for our hearts and our homes and our neighbors, and next week we'll talk about the nations. So those are very obviously venues in which we want to be living out our mission, going and doing in Jesus' name. But what's the earth got to do with it? I mean, our mission is to people, right? There are lots of organizations out there that are saving the whales and saving uh, the rainforests. Aren't we about saving men and women and boys and girls? Aren't there more important things we could be talking about on a Sunday in church? Is this just a trendy topic? Or is it something that God would truly have us engaged with? However you may feel about the whole thing, I think we've raised enough questions here to take a further look at what the Bible has to say about the earth and our responsibilities to it. And I don't mind telling you, I had a great time this week digging into some passages and taking a fresh look at things that I hadn't fully appreciated even in the many, many times I've studied these passages. It's not often after 30-some years of preaching you get to say, I've never preached on this before. But that's kind of the case here today. And as it turns out, that's not a good thing. So, let's go to Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, the Bible begins with the creation of the natural world. Remember now, the supernatural world already existed, had always existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed from all eternity in perfect fellowship and community with one another and with a whole great and varied host of angelic beings. The Bible begins with God deciding of his own will to extend his rule into other new realms and to share his glory with creatures and beings yet to come into existence. The book of Genesis tells us a little bit about how he did that. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so it goes through this first chapter of Genesis. God brings a universe into being with a sense of order and design and ever-increasing goodness. Now, it's worth pointing out for a moment, since we're here, that the Genesis account allows for and even supports all three of the views generally held by Christian people about Earth's origins. There are generally three views held by Christian people. Uh, the young Earth, young creationism, believing that the Earth was created in six literal days less than 10,000 years ago. Then there's progressive creation, 
formerly known as old earth creation. And this is the idea that uh, God created the earth through a combination of natural processes and divine supernatural intervention over a period of many, many millennia. And then evolutionary creation, formerly known as theistic evolution, suggests that God created the earth, but he did so through natural processes that he set in motion. All three of these can be supported by the biblical text. And regardless of which one you hold, Genesis is clear that God brought the entire universe and all of its beings into existence for the increase of his praise and his glory. Well, that creative process culminates with the creation of human beings in verse 20, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now, up until this point, everything God made has been good. But now suddenly, with the creation of the man and the woman, we're told that it's very good. Now, why is that? What was it about the creation of the human being that was especially good? Well, it turns out the man and woman are not just yet another inhabitant of this world God has created, as if uh, a city zoo has just gotten itself a rare white tiger or something. It's that the human beings are now able to help take care of this world that God has made. They can function as caretakers, not just inhabitants. You see, as beautiful as the world is when it's completed on that sixth day, when God's work is done, it's not yet perfect. It's not yet all that it was meant to be. It's, it will be up to the man and the women and their descendants to see to it that the earth realizes its potential, all that God had in mind when he created it. And two words are used to describe the role that human beings are to play. They are to subdue the earth and to rule over the earth. Subduing has the idea of bringing order to it, as God has done, brought order to the days and the nights and the land and the sea. And the ruling word has the idea of managing and even caring for something. That ruling word would be used to describe the work of kings superintending their realm, but it would also be used of shepherds taking care of their flocks. So the idea here is that God appoints human beings to be vice regents over his creation. Now, since we live in a democracy, we don't understand much about these kinds of terms. So the dictionary tells us that a vice regent is a person who acts in the name or place of a ruler, which means God has put us in charge of planet Earth and every material thing that we can lay our eyes and hands on. We are not mere inhabitants of a cosmic zoo. We are the keepers and the curators of that universe. Now, this is important 
because to hear some environmentalists talk, the earth would be better off without us, as if human beings are the spoiler of the planet in its pristine beauty. But that's not the case at all, the Bible tells us. Human beings are essential to the flourishing of this planet and to the display of God's glory in and through it. Not just because we're here, but because of our responsibility to help it realize its potential. The, there's a very highly regarded Genesis scholar. His name is John Walton. He has actually spoken here at Grace before. And he puts it this way. The command to subdue and rule gives people the mission of bringing order to their world just as God brought order to the chaos. Now, did you catch the word he used there? Mission. You see, I'm not making this stuff up. It's here. Caring for creation is part of our mission as men and women made in the image of God. And don't miss the fact, this is before the fall. Okay, this is before sin and death have entered the world. This is before the thorns and thistles have begun to run amok. Even from the very beginning, before the fall, this earth needed tending. It needed nurturing. And so God put human beings here to carry on that work. Now, as exciting as all that is, it gets even better in chapter 2. Let's jump ahead to verses 8 and 9. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. Think about that word garden for a moment. That word garden could also be translated parkland. It's kind of a richer word, which means that we ought not to be thinking of that flower bed or vegetable patch in your backyard. We ought to be thinking of the grounds of High Clear Castle, better known as Downton Abbey. Okay? Think of those spacious grounds. Think of Lady Mary retreating to those woods to sort out her latest romantic disaster or to counsel with her sisters about the best way to rescue the estate. The garden isn't just a source of food and flowers for the table. It's a refuge. It's a sanctuary. It's a place you go to commune with, with the beauty of the world, with the people you're with, and yes, even the God who made it all. Walton and other Old Testament scholars point out that the language and movement of Genesis 2 is consistent with the, the, the design and the build of a temple and its courtyards sacred spaces where people would worship and serve and come to know their God. Which begins to help us understand why in Genesis 3 we read how God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, looking for the man and woman that he made. And if we read a little further, we find out that Eden was actually just the source of the garden, the, the water supply from which it would flow. But the garden itself was intended to extend beyond the confines of Eden. Verse 15, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So the man and then the woman are placed in the garden not just to take care of it, 
not only to enjoy it, but to extend its borders, to expand its capacity, creating even more sacred space in which God could be worshipped and encountered and served. And that phrase, to work it and take care of it, later on in the Old Testament, that's the same language that will describe the work of priests in the temple as they maintain that sacred space, as they facilitate people's encounters with God. You see what this means? The earth isn't just a place for people and plants and animals to live. It's not just a playground for hiking and skiing and sailing and whatever else we want to do. It is a sanctuary where God is to be encountered and worshipped and served and known. And we are the keepers of that space. We are the ministers of that bounty. So yes, this is worth talking about in church. Yes, this is central to our mission as children of God and followers of Christ. So let's bring it together this way. We are good for the world when we enjoy the earth and care for it in relationship with God. We are good for the world when we enjoy the earth and care for it in relationship with God. Now, John Stott once pointed out that human beings tend to make one of two errors when it comes to the natural world. We either idolize it, or we tend to exploit it. We idolize it when we worship the sun or moon and stars, when we talk about Mother Nature as if it's a person, a force, a personal force, when we go to the nature for a spiritual sustenance without paying any attention to the God who made it all, we tend to idolize it. Or we tend to exploit it. We tend to just take advantage of it, to use it to serve our own interests and purposes. And unfortunately, Christians tend toward that second mistake of exploiting the earth. I mean, if God gave us every green plant for food, if we're in charge, then we can do what we want with it, right? To serve our interests and purposes. But the biblical truth we're discovering today is that we are to be stewards of the natural world. We're to enjoy it and care for it, but all the while remembering that it is not for us. This is our Father's world. He made it for his glory and purposes and pleasure. We get to enjoy it and even experience its bounty, but to do so in a way that increases his glory and extends its goodness to all the people that God loves. Psalm 24 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so God's purposes are served when more and more people are blessed by the earth and his glory is increased when more and more places on earth radiate his beauty and goodness. And so we steward the earth, we're good for the earth, when we enjoy it and care for it in relationship with God. Now, a couple of practical thoughts about how to do that. First, we're to enjoy the earth in relationship with God, which means it's good to sit in your backyard or take a walk in the park on a fine June Sunday afternoon. It's good to go skiing and hiking and sailing and fishing and whatever it is you love to do in the outdoors. But when you do those things, 
don't forget that the God who made it all is out there waiting for you to meet him. So don't forget to thank him, maybe out loud, for the beauty and the splendor that you're enjoying. Don't miss a teachable moment to tell your children or grandchildren or your parents or whoever you're with that there is a good and great and powerful God behind all that we enjoy. And don't forget to listen for what God might be saying to you in that moment through those wonders that he's created. Last Sunday, I told you a little bit about uh, experience, the experience I had in that uh, country church in Vermont a couple of Sundays ago when the Lord met me and spoke to me in a very personal and meaningful way. I mean, that's why we go to church, right? To encounter God, to hear from him, to meet him. What I didn't tell you was later that day, as the day came to an end, that evening after dinner, I stepped out onto the back porch of the house we were staying in and looked across this Vermont Valley to just as the sun was about to set, as color began to ripple across the sky, first a bright yellow, gradually giving way to a soft orange that then became radiant red, reflecting off the base of the clouds, and then a deep purple as dusk descended on that Vermont valley. It went on and on and on and on. And as I stood and watched it, I sensed the Lord speaking a truth into my life, a specific truth that I needed to hear in that moment. But I might not have, if I hadn't been in that moment, if I hadn't been in that place, if I hadn't, by God's grace, paid a little bit of attention. My point is that that verdant Vermont Valley was every bit as sacred a space as the stained glass sanctuary of that Methodist church I was in that morning. I don't know what, I don't know what unbelieving people do with moments like that and beauty like that. What do you say to yourself after, after a moment like that? Lucky for us, the sun set again. What do you do after the wonder of a moment like that? Do you shrug your shoulders and go back to a world without any rhyme or reason or person behind it? The earth is a garden in which the God who made it comes walking to meet us and to speak with us. The earth is a sanctuary in which we encounter, worship, and serve the God who made it all. So I hope this summer you'll get some chances to get into the great outdoors. Whether you're traveling far and wide or you're just sitting in your backyard, whatever you do and wherever you go, don't forget to look and listen for the beauty and the presence of the God who made it all, for his pleasure and yours. We're good for the earth when we enjoy it in relationship with God. But we're also good for the earth when we care for it in relationship with God. Remember, we're here to steward the earth, to, to multiply its, its resources, to expand its capacity, to extend its longevity. If enjoying the earth is a way of loving God, then caring for the earth is a way of loving our neighbors. Because when we steward the earth well, it provides people with nourishing food and clean water 
and fresh air and fertile soil. When we manage forests so that they produce more lumber, when we discover clean and renewable sources of energy, when we reduce the waste that we produce, we are loving our neighbors. And often we are loving the most vulnerable of our neighbors. Because the dirty truth about pollution and climate change is that it is often the most vulnerable of this world who suffer the effects of it. It's the materially poor and the politically oppressed who find themselves living in the most fragile environments on Earth, floodplains and, and urban slums and drought-prone regions of the world. And so when we fail to pay attention to those things, we're not only failing to live up to our calling as human beings, but as followers of Jesus Christ, who has a heart for the most vulnerable of the Earth. So when we care for the earth, we're loving our neighbors, we're loving the most vulnerable, and we are, we're loving the generations who will come after us, our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Whatever you may think about greenhouse gases and pipelines and those sorts of things, if the earth is going to be flourishing 500 years from now, fossil fuels are probably not going to get us there. So we need to take a long-term view of these things, and it needs to begin on a very personal level. And so each week, as we've made our way through this series, we have introduced a faithful practice that will help us have a faithful presence in the world. And so we've talked about the faithful practice of daily surrender of our hearts, of table talk in our homes, and of extending hospitality in our neighborhoods. The faithful practice we'd like to suggest for this week is use less. That's it. Just use less. Remember, we're stewards, not consumers. It's fine to use the Earth's resources, but not to use them up. They tell us the average American produces about four and a half pounds of garbage a day, which is just about double the global average. 60,000 garbage trucks a day being dumped into landfills in the ocean by Americans alone. So what if we made it a faithful practice simply to use less? Use less water. When, when you brush your teeth, when you wash the dishes, when you water the lawn. Use less electricity. Turn off the lights, turn down the AC, change some of the light bulbs. Use less gas. Buy a more fuel-efficient car. Ride your bike, take a walk, use public transportation, drive slower. <laughs> Gulp. Use less paper, use less plastic, use less fertilizer, use less deodorant. Maybe not, okay? Just not, not the aerosol kind, maybe not. Just use less of everything. That will not only help to preserve resources and protect the environment, it will be a daily reminder that we are stewards, not consumers, that this is God's world and not ours, and that we live to serve other people's interests and not just our own. So we better stop there for now. There's lots more we could say and do. We'll probably come back to it another time. But let's affirm that we are good for the world when we enjoy the earth and care for it in relationship with God.
And let's begin by making it a faithful practice to use less. Now, as I prepared for this message, I had a couple of meaningful conversations with a Grace Chapel member who is far more versed in these things, both in thinking and doing, than I am. And so I've invited him as we finish up to come and just share a little bit of his personal story on this subject. So would you welcome Tim as he comes to share with us for just a moment. Now, uh, Tim and his wife Paula and their children have been part of the Grace Chapel family for 20-some years now. They're pretty active here on the Lexington campus. Uh, they lead a life community, and uh, they often teach in our adult discipleship course. But uh, this has also become an area of interest for you, Tim. So tell us a little bit about why, as a Christ follower, and how this became an important issue for you. So about four years ago, I attended a teacher's tour of Maine's forests. I had spent a few days exploring Baxter State Park and damaging my knees, failing to get up Mount Katahdin. During the tour, a few of the teachers had a long evening discussion about the many environmental challenges facing the world, from climate change to mass extinctions. One older gentleman suggested that it was too late and that we were doomed. I countered that we have to have hope. Even if things look bleak, we have to share a message of hope with our students. The man was about 20 years older than me, from New York City, and Jewish. Eventually, it hit me that he must have grown up among Holocaust survivors. Perhaps his own parents were numbered among them. He knows from bitter experience that God does not always intervene to save us from evil or our own folly. At the same time, as Christians, we have to be people of hope. As we partner with environmental groups and young people, local churches can be the people with hope, and that hope can open doors to witnessing as well. well thank you, Tim. Um, how about in terms of the church? How can the church be a part of this, especially when it's become a very politically charged kind of an issue? So creation care is fundamentally a moral and spiritual issue, not a political issue. Historically, our parties have not been divided over environmentalism. Republican presidents have provided important leadership, whether Theodore Roosevelt at the beginning of the 20th century, Richard Nixon signing legislation creating the Environmental Protection Agency and the Clean Waters Act, or George H.W. Bush pledging to counter the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. As we try to work locally on environmental issues, it becomes easier to avoid polarization. People will cooperate for clean air, water, and to conserve land across political lines. Also, churches can help lead by conducting energy audits, installing renewable energy, and even reducing driving distances to church by establishing new campuses. <laughs> Preach it. I do find it interesting that this is one issue, perhaps in all the world, that virtually the whole world has been able to agree upon needs our attention. And so there's something significant there. A final question, Tim. Um, We've been talking a lot this year about finding your go, your personal sense of mission in the world, and it seems like this has kind of become that for you. Tell us how that's happened and what that looks like for you personally. 
So thank you. Uh, this really started with my experiences growing up with my family during the 1970s energy crises. My dad started carpooling to work, turned down the heat in the house, bought more fuel-efficient cars, and started exploring alternative energy sources. Later, he even taught a physics class on energy and the environment at the University of Rochester and built a super-insulated passive solar home in southern New Hampshire. Today, I seek to educate my students about principles of sustainability. Ten years ago, my family and I were invited to a family meeting in the Adirondacks to discuss whether we could keep the forest that my grandparents had purchased going into the next generation. My immediate family felt led to begin training to help take over management of the forest. Within several years, I also got involved with the town forest in my town of Lancaster, Massachusetts. Since then, we have added 140 acres to the town forest and expanded the trail network. More recently, I have served with Freedom's Way National Heritage Area, a federally sponsored heritage area with a partnership with Minuteman National Park. Right now, we are, we are working on developing a new Thoreau Trail that will connect Walden Pond with the top of Mount Wachusett along the path of a walk he took in 1842. The inaugural walk on this new trail will be at the end of June. We hope that the route will become a permanent national historic trail and expand recreational opportunities, as well as help to coordinate town's land protection efforts, as well as improving wildlife habitat and wildlife corridors. Sounds like that's good for the world. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you, Tim. I hope you found this um, helpful and perhaps insightful. Maybe it's opened your eyes and heart to something that perhaps we had overlooked or underestimated before. But it's still possible, as we finish all this, that you might be saying, yeah, but what does it have to do with the gospel? What about the good news of new life in Jesus Christ and our mission of bringing that news to the whole world? I don't have time for a long answer to that question, but let me leave you with a verse from Romans chapter 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. You see, because of the fall, human beings have not always lived up to our calling to care for this world, to enjoy it in relationship with God. We've gone our own way. And so we have failed to care for it, and we have damaged the environment, bringing harm to ourselves and many people around us. It's why we're in the mess we're in right now. But if you remember at the beginning of our series, we said we're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. And one of the things we're saved for is to finally accept and live up to our calling as caretakers, stewards of this world. And until we, and to do that in partnership and relationship with God, and that relationship comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's not until we're saved from sin and selfishness and short-sightedness that we can begin to save this planet on which we live. So according to the Apostle Paul, the world is waiting. The earth is groaning. 
the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, for followers of Jesus Christ to step up and fulfill their calling so that this, this earth and all its inhabitants will one day become all that they and we were meant to be. To the glory of God, and until that day comes, or when that day comes, and only when that day comes, will Jesus who died be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Let's pray. Lord, we have had a full morning with much to celebrate, much to learn, and much to live. We give you thanks for this wonderful world you have made and the great privilege and responsibility you have placed upon our shoulders. We thank you for the promise of your Spirit's help and the guidance of your word and the community of faith as we go out to enjoy this world and care for it. May we do that with great joy and intensity in this summer season and in the days to come. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.